I'm a political member in DEFO with responsibility for environment and regulation. My name's Rowan Henthorn and I work on the Blue Carbon Project. I'm Jackie Keenan and I work on the Blue Carbon Project at DEFO. We better start with the obvious and, and the simple question, I guess, to start out with this one. And I'll throw this one open to the panel, as they say. When we say blue carbon, what do we mean? I think the easiest way to compare it is with um the stuff on land so there's a pretty good understanding that trees and plants on land absorb carbon and they store it away in the in a soil underneath them um, and that's what happens in the sea as well so animals and plants in the sea absorb carbon as they're living and either as they poo or as they die and um, that carbon um, goes down to the seabed and is either locked away or it goes into back into the carbon cycle so blue carbon is carbon that's stored in the sea so we have ecosystems like um, seagrass kelp um, and and shellfish reefs, and they all are, uh, are some of our carbon blue carbon ecosystems. So it's a bit like sort of we hear, we hear sort of carbon sequestration on 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 land and things like peat bogs. It's sort of similar to that, but under the sea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So presumably that makes it a invisible to most people, and b much harder to actually discover much about. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of um, science in, in the sea. Um, you look out at this blue expanse and, and a lot of people don't know what's going on under the surface. Um, but the really exciting thing about blue carbon is that once it's actually locked in those systems, it's much harder to re-release because it is under the sea. Um, whereas on land, you can you know things can start on fire or just naturally degrade and release that carbon. Um, in the sea, it's a lot harder to do so. So what, one of the reasons why blue carbon is so important. So the Blue Carbon Project, which is what we're talking about here, this has been running for, what, a year or so now? Going up to a year now, yeah. Okay, so let's tell us a little bit more about it. Maybe, Michelle, you can come in on this as well. How was this set up? When was this set up? Why was this set up? Oh, yeah, it predates me. Even. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm too recent as, a, as an elected <laughs> member. Um, but it, it's, well, you, you guys were on board with it from the start. It's part of a long-term project as part of the climate change response to look at and understand how carbon gets locked away in our marine environment. And the Isle of Man actually has more territorial sea than it does territorial land. So what's under those waters is a, a critical part. And it's, like, like Jack said earlier, you know, it's, it's dead easy to measure the things on land because they're, they're, they're easy to see. Much harder to do it in a marine environment. So you need a, a dedicated project that looks and says, well, what are the different ecosystems? How are they functioning and how does carbon move around those? And it's an area that's not been really studied. So in some ways, this is a bit of a pioneering project, certainly for a whole nation to, to look at it, its uh, territorial seas and say, right, let's try and get a handle on, on what's going on there, understand those systems, understand how we interact with them and how we can best support them. So is, is it new science to a degree? Yeah, it's pretty new science. And I'd say that we were really lucky initially when, when government declared a climate emergency, you know, part of the process was bringing officers from all across government together um, and one of those officers and project leads was actually Dr Fiona Gell who's a fantastic marine scientist and she really made sure and that author, yeah. an author <laughs> yeah and she made sure that the seas were on the table and we were talking about how we respond because you know as Michelle says we've got such a large sea area and um, often completely overlooked and overlooked on the global global scale as well so actually this is an area that the Isle of Man can kind of pack a punch and actually um do some really exciting innovative work and obviously we've also got that kind of history of marine science with the, the marine lab down south um so we've got 
actually a fairly good understanding in comparison with a lot of other countries around us or other countries around the world. We have a pretty good understanding of what we have in terms of our seas, but blue carbon being quite a new area of science and research, we can use that basis of knowledge to, to build up a better picture of what we have in terms of blue carbon. I think it's funny how knowledge has shifted over time because, you know, you go back 10 years and in the textbooks it'll say the rainforests are the lungs of the world and stuff like that. And we know now that plankton produces more oxygen than all the rainforests. And so our seas are really the lungs of the world. And, and we've, we've kind of almost underestimated that. And actually it's, it's quite ironic, you know, you sit here on the Isle of Man, you pretty much can't escape seeing the sea on any particular day. Uh, but it's just not been like really studied as much as it should have been because it's, you're right, it's difficult to get there. It's harder and you have to work a bit, bit harder to, to actually manage to understand it. And I think the thing is as well, just looking at some of the figures, and it was, it was quoted there, over 85% of our territory, the Isle of Man's territory, is actually marine environment. Which mm. I suppose you know you don't think about. People think about the little Isle of Man. That's it. You forget about the what is it? Twelve miles going out to the our territorial waters. Yeah. So it's a, a vast expanse. And, and that's the same. You know, the world over we call it Earth, but actually seventy percent of the surface of the Earth is made up of ocean. And um, you know, every second breath we take is because of the phytoplankton producing oxygen for us. So we've for a long time kind of ignored that very important role that the ocean plays in 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 our lives and and in in the in the world that we live so it's really exciting to be working in a project that kind of puts that at the forefront and I think for a lot of us who live on the island and a lot of people who grew up here it's something that we don't that we take for granted that we don't really think about and although we live our lives on land I think for me like when I went to, away to university and I was somewhere away from the sea I really felt that like absence of it and not being able to just look out and see the sea wherever I was was actually a really um that was quite a, a poignant moment of recognizing how much it meant to me and I think that that's something that we do take for granted on the island sometimes and something that we want to help sort of bring to the forefront of people's consciousness a bit more like the sea is so integral to our lives and to our culture and our mm -hmm. society um, and we should look after it. I think you're so right you hear that so often from people who have moved away the one thing they miss mm. is that connection with the sea which curiously enough I think in the last couple of years through lockdown has come very much to the fore people started appreciating that much more again I might come back to that in a, a few moments um so the project, I could say, we're at the end of phase one. So what what has phase one been about then? Has that been basically a sort of making the foundations for what we've actually got here? Yeah, I guess, um, as we said, it's, it's a new research area. So what we wanted to make sure before we kind of launched into a full project over that three-year period, we wanted to make sure that there was enough potential um, to manage the blue carbon in our seas to make it worthwhile in investing in a, in a, lo in a longer-term project. So this first year has been about collecting some initial data, analysing that and understanding where our key blue carbon habitats are and, I guess, fundamentally what potential there is to manage them, to maximise them. Um, so that's what this whole first year has been about. So what have we got here then? We've got some excellent blue carbon habitats and I guess there's the ones that probably people might know a little bit more about um, like seagrasses and a little bit of salt marsh. They're pretty small but actually um, the less sexy marine sediment is probably where a lot of our carbon is stored and that's off the west of the island in this thick mud belt um, where you get a lot of nephrops which are kind of like a longer steam prawny yeah, kind prawn, of creature. Like a big prawn. <laughs> oh, big <laughs> like a big prawn. Dublin, <laughs> Dublin Bay prawn. Yeah, yeah. So um, actually that's probably where a lot of our carbon 
carbon is stored and um what else have we got we've got incredible merle which is a pink coralline algae um and horse mussel reefs so we've got some really exciting um creatures and, and habitats around the island and I think some of those ecosystems, when we talk about merl beds or shellfish beds, it's we don't think we don't visualise how beautiful they are, but also how complex they are. So it's not just about the blue carbon that they store; it's also about the biodiversity and the the huge variety of marine life. You see pictures of these reefs of of merl or, or shellfish, and and it's incredible the life that those areas support and that's a big part of the project as well as understanding those interactions of biodiversity and blue carbon um, and the other services and functions that those ecosystems do. The horse mussel reefs I think are particularly interesting yeah. and they horse mussels are not edible and, and they're much larger than your standard edible mussels but they're, they're reef building organisms so they cement themselves together and then other things settle out on them. But all of the horse mussel reefs are, are, tend to be fairly deep and they're all filter feeding. So they're in areas that are swept by tide. That makes it difficult. I know we've done some stuff with um, Harriet Watt over the years uh, up off uh, uh, north of Ramsey on the, on the banks up there. And you can't keep equipment in the water long enough because the draw of the tide over the top of it is and you have to time your getting to the, the dive site to the to the minute because you, you've only got 45 minutes that you can safely be in the water before everything's sort of swept off. Um, and I think it's the difficulty of, of accessing some of those means that they have been less studied than they should. But, my, but some of my favourite habitat around here is, is those those deep horse mussel reefs. They are just beautiful. And it's you, you sort of go down and try and sort of survey these. And, and, and in a square metre, you'll pick up that there's a sort of 30 or 40 different species present. And, and you know, we've recently declared a biodiversity uh, crisis and, and Tim Morden debated it not very long ago. Uh, but when you start looking at some of these things, you think, actually, that's where some of the highest levels of biodiversity exist is because those horse mussels build these reefs that last a long time. Everything else kind of piles in and, and takes advantage of them, them being settled there. And it's like this alien underwater world. I mean, the creatures that are living in our seas are just out of this world. And, and like Michelle says, trying to do science in the marine environment, is like, it's like going to space. You know, you have to put on your, on your kit and your gear and, and it's a like really challenging environment. But I think people would be completely blown away if they knew and, and saw some of the creatures that we've got in our seas because they are completely alien and just... Mm magnificent and that is the great difficulty i think uh, you're right it's so difficult to inspire people to want to become interested and want to protect environments if they have no exposure to them on land it's relatively easy you can say right you, you can sort of lead groups you can lead you know walks you can have parties going to see particular areas someone to talk about you can't really do that in places like sort of as you say mussel reefs or going down to seagrass unless you're a diver, realistically. Oh, well, technolo Technology is making it easier. The, yeah. you know, divers years ago would have used a film camera and they would have had 24 shots that had probably badly lit at least 18 of them and you didn't know what you were going to get until four weeks later when you got your film back. Now with digital cameras, uh, you know, there's been some very successful sort of underwater photography competitions run again this year. There's a new book out that's about the little sea slugs that live <laughs> around the Isle of Man. Tim Nicholson's written and the photos that are all taken around here. And I think that digital photography and digital videography is actually increasing the amount of material that we, we get out of the marine environment that we can share with people and say, look, you know, this is the sort of stuff we see. And so I think in some ways that's starting to make it a little bit more accessible um, and starting to mean that we can, for those that don't want to put on all that kit and jump <laughs> under the cold water, we can bring those those images back out and we can sort of show people what we're trying to achieve. And there's also, there's lots of different ways that people 
engage with information and different ways that you can share information and make it relatable to to a, to different audiences and something that that we're really interested in is that is the crossover between sort of the arts and creativity and science um and using creative um people and creative methods to to communicate that science and and help different audiences relate to the sea and and have a, a better connection to it um so that's yeah i think there's a lot of people working in the arts who who we again culturally we use the sea a lot in in the in the art the poetry the music that we produce and it's using that as a tool to to communicate the science as well and translating it into different languages and is this where it gets very complex in many ways if the science isn't complex enough already and that's you, you can do the scientific research and say right this is what the data says this is what we think we should be doing but as you're saying there is this particularly when it comes to the marine environments there is this whole holistic approach which needs to be taken there are so many demands on the sea i mean just as you say there's alongside the whole cultural and spiritual influence of the sea on our lives you've got things you know you've got shipping you've got diving you've got pipelines coming over you've now of course things like wind farms maybe going up and see there's so many different demands does that make it really difficult then to actually plan a route forward that's going to try and take all of these into account i think it's harder the less you know about it which is kind of one of the fundamental aspects of this project if you know what's there it's a lot easier to manage and draw lines around certain areas and 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 plan out activities because it is possible like on land to have lots of different activities going on in an in a sustainable and considered way um but the way to do that is to really understand what you've got there what it's doing what its function is and what its value is and, and making sure that you kind of navigate around those so all activities can take place so i think we're all aware definitely across government um, and the stakeholders that we work with, that the sea is likely to become a lot busier um, in terms of, of what we, the activities we do and our needs upon upon that space. Um, and it's really, really important to make sure that we're putting um, mechanisms in place to do it in a sustainable way that's mindful of all those really important, sensitive areas. I think marine spatial planning has been a thing for years and you can go back well, probably about a decade and at some point they started talking about taking aggregate out of the sea and, and you know if we go and look off Ramsey there's lots of gravel banks up there and could you could you scoop it out of the sea and, and I remember at the time you know the, the fishermen got together with a load of uh, non-governmental organizations and and, and and opposed any idea that you were going to go and just scoop the seabed away and, and it had no consequence um, and I think attitudes have shifted to that and you know we now recognize there is the seabed we know there are various demands on that, but there's also that that layer of water, and it's it's almost slightly different to planning on land because you know you've got to work in that sort of extra dimension almost, um, and that you can have multiple things going on. So I think you know, the really interesting shift is you get as far as putting a whole series of marine nature reserves around the island, and you've already drawn a line in the in the, line in the sand. It's a really bad ex- <laughs> bad expression in this case, isn't it? You've drawn a line on a map because you can't see it underneath the water, but you've already then set out your stall to say there will be areas where we will restrict what the activities are and that's based on science and that goes back to what you were saying about the marine lab and its impact you know the first ever area that was closed off to improve fisheries was outside of Port Erin and I've seen that data quoted at international conferences because it is that important to demonstrate that if you protect an area where scallops bat are settling and where they're breeding that improves catch outside the area and so I think that's the first bit of evidence that you get that says actually if we don't just carry on doing business as usual across the whole seabed 
and have a free-for-all when we actually manage areas then you can manage those activities so that everyone is getting you know something out of out of the marine environment and that's not just first on the Isle of Man that's one of the first in the world you know the Isle of Man really has been such a leader in marine science Mm. and fisheries management for a long long time which is why it's so great to kind of take that baton and move forward with the blue carbon project because it's the greatest regret ever that the government at the time didn't step in and support the marine lab um, mm-hmm. financially because actually you know, they would have had to have supported the buildings and the sort of the infrastructure but not the research science as any research scientist knows you go and you apply for grants and you fund your own research um, and I you go know, to, to their shame at the time that they didn't recognize the immense value of the work but also having that scientific base here and some of it's recreated you know DEFA pick up bits of it and, and government lab pick up bits of it and things like that but it's still not the same as having that research institute so, so where are we now? You're touching on that, Rowan. Are we still part of a of a global network of scientific research? Do we do we sort of collaborate with other researchers around the world? Yeah. Well, the really fantastic thing about this project is that we are collaborating um, with some really amazing institutions throughout the UK. So we're working with the National Oceanography Centre that are down in Southampton. Um, we're working with Swansea University, um, and we're working with Bangor University as well. So the way we are kind of working through this project. Is, is through research and we have got a number of PhD students um, which is a really great way of doing cutting edge research and tapping into those amazing um, academic resources and it's just amazing to work with these people because they are at the top of their field um, and are using all their creativity and knowledge um, to come up with some really exciting innovative ideas and it's just great that the Isle of Man can provide that platform to be able to do that research um, and because of our size actually researchers really want to work here because there's not many places in the world that you can study an entire territory including what's on land and at sea because we are relatively small so you can really look at interesting dynamics between the land and the sea and you know look at whole systems and um and that's really exciting for researchers years ago i remember the field studies council used to come over to the isle of man and they used to run environmental courses here because we have such an interesting geology and you could literally you could take people from being on peatland and you could take them down to limestone uh, grasslands and, and you could you switch it around and you had that access to it. And the, the same thing applies in the marine environment, doesn't it? You, I, can, I can pick stretches off, say, the east coast of England where pretty much you can go out 20 miles and it looks the same all the way down the coast. Whereas here we've got that real mix between the rocky, the mud, the sandy, you know, the gravel subjects, the, the banks and stuff. So you're actually getting, as you say, access to so many different environments with a really easy point of reference. Yeah, I don't think many people would realise that. Actually, we've got some of the best diving in the UK here. We've got really incredible... I often hear that. I'm not a diver, but <laughs> I do hear that. We have brilliant diving here. And that's true, is it? So it's, it's diving it for all sorts, for, for either marine or wrecks or So one of the reasons the marine lab was placed mm. here was you get uh, colder northern waters bringing down some of the species that you only see further north, and you used to get southern warmer waters bringing some of the species you only see from the south. So you almost get this sort of confluence meeting of species, um, and that boundary is shifting a little bit. But the diving here is, is just, it's superb. Just going back to the, to the size of the Isle of Man, the advantages of the size of the Isle of Man for researchers and why they find that interesting, it also is from from a blue carbon management perspective or a marine management perspective, it's really interesting and useful to be able to work in this in this environment where we've got 
such close communities. We've got connections between all the different stakeholders. We've got the fishing community, business community, policymakers, researchers, conservationists. That and the fact that we can work really closely all together is an incredible tool for us to be able to to do this work really um, progressively and be really nimble in what we do. And and that's another really exciting part of this project for me has been. So developing this working group, this blue carbon working group that we have and have seeing those communications between all those different stakeholders and, and how that comes together. It's, again, a really unique aspect of working in the Isle of Man and a real strength that we have to be this leader in, in these kind of research areas. I think the important thing is that you know your science is going to go somewhere, yeah. here, isn't it? You could be doing you know, a, a, an NERC-sponsored project somewhere else, in, in somewhere in the British Isles. And yet your ability to access policymakers and mm-hmm. to actually divert them down a route that says we've found this and this, therefore this, these are the logical actions that we need to take. That, that's kind of that's really hard. But but here we've got a, a Tim Ward that are definitely progressive, that definitely understand the concept of climate change, that are sympathetic to those those actions that we need to take. And so you, you know that whatever you do mm. actually has a real value at the end of it. It's not just going to be a report that sits on someone's shelf, is it? Absolutely. And you because he- you hear that narrative rumbling away <laughs> that we're so small, you know, we're too small. What's the point in us doing anything? Yeah. Um, but actually, the reality is our size is our strength. And, and you can scale the work we do up. And actually, that's a real value to people and to other nations. And, and we really need to take that and run with it and realize that we can be innovative and progressive and, and small and dynamic. And, and that's really exciting. That's exactly the route we should be taking, not the, oh, we're so small, let's not bother doing anything. Laughing at the BBC headline that was running the other day that said, "Oh, they're going to ban plastic knives and forks and plastic plates and stuff," and I thought, "Oh yeah, we're already there. Yeah, yeah you've missed that one, guys. We we led the way on that." <laughs> also, in terms of that, in terms of that progressiveness, and and in terms of like if we lead the way more, there's also this argument about the costs of what we do in terms of a climate change. And actually, the more we do, the more progressively, the more we're leading the way, the more investment that brings to the island, the more that. New businesses will come here, but also there's businesses that are already here on the island that have their own net zero targets that they have to meet. And we have to respond to that if they're going to stay here. And the business community have been very vocal about the fact that they need to see that coming from the government, that there is that proactive action happening so that they can meet their targets. So it's, yeah, it's it's an exciting place to be in, but it's also a place that we really need to be in for the Isle of Man to be able to continue to grow and be as vibrant and thriving as it has been. And it's exactly how a biosphere island should mm-hmm. work. You know, that's it. that's biosphere in a nutshell, really, isn't it? It's by working with people, working with nature, working with our community and cultural heritage. And that's what we tr- we really try and bring that into the project because I think that's the way that everything needs to work. We need to be completely holistic now and think about things um, and the connections between them. Absolutely, and, and I think you're right. I've spoken to several businesses, and it's true that they, yes, they need to see that the Isle of Man is committed to a, to a net zero carbon target of some kind. Otherwise, they're not going to stay here one way or another. I don't know how widely that is appreciated on the island. Now no, you it's definitely known in government. It's, it's it, good it, we in definitely government. we definitely hear that message. We we know that there are large corporations who have their net zero targets, and if if we don't help meet those and if we don't transition our electricity generation away from gas in the time frames we've said that we, we will lose those businesses from here and that would be devastating for the people that, that work in those businesses and for the island's economy. So and import- hear it. 
important to note as well, we've got our own net zero target of reaching net zero by 2050, but a lot of those businesses have sooner targets than mm. that, so 2030, some are even, even more ambitious than that. So we have to be aware of that and, and understanding. So here we are, as we're talking today, uh, January 2023, phase 1A is completed. We're delighted to say that there is funding now in place for the project to go forward. So phase 1B, presumably, underway. Where are we going now? What's happening then? Where are we taking this project after this initial work? Well, I'm delighted to be able to call the project just the project now, <laughs> having <laughs> having referred to it as A, B, C. So yeah, the, the, the project over the next two years, um, we're starting a new PhD in, in June with, with Bangor, and that's really to look at the impact of, of fisheries on, on that muddy area that um, and the sediment and the carbon stored there. Um, which is really exciting. That's going to be world-leading um, experimental work. And we're working really closely with the fishing industry as well to make sure that everybody's aligned and we're all working together. Um, and it's basically about building up that picture of, of our blue carbon hotspots um, and key habitats and working to understand the threats upon them. So that's not just threats that happen at sea, but um, understanding how our actions on land really impact the marine environment. So hopefully looking at it from a complete um catchment based approach it's called from kind of from peak to peak to um i don't know i can never say that but i really want to it's like from peak peak to to (laughs) estuary yeah from the bottom of the sea to the top of the (laughs) highest mountain and understanding how it's all completely interlinked and how you can tweak management to to make sure that um all the activities are, are positively impacting each other Peak to reef. Like Peak, to reef. Peak to reef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Source yeah. to sea. Source to sea. Yeah. So <laughs> many options. Yeah. I didn't get any of them. <laughs> so, so the areas we've been talking about the the seagrass, the male, uh, the kelp, and such like, are these areas actually protected? Because I think I was reading some of the notes there saying that there's only a couple that are, are listed as these nationally determined contributions. These NDCs, just seagrass, salt marsh, and uh, was it mangroves? I think. Do we need to get these other areas listed as well? That's something that, again, because blue blue carbon science is quite new, that is an area that's developing. So those three areas, the seagrass, um, salt marsh and mangroves, are recognised under the IPCC. So they are part of the nationally determined contributions that all countries who are signed up to the Paris Agreement um, report on their, um, basically their carbon accounts. um, so they're the only three blue carbon ecosystems at the moment, but there is work happening all around the world to have these other blue carbon ecosystems added to that. But yeah. I was gonna say, the pace at which this research is moving forward, and I think um, we have always been quite progressive in terms of our marine conservation and the way that we manage our seas, and we, we want to make sure that when they are put onto um, that IPC, see list that we are in a position where we know exactly what we have how much carbon is stored there um and we're already managing it in a way that's positive for it um because just you know having gone to international conferences it, it's on the way it's not kind of if it's when it, when it happens and um yeah we just want to make sure we're in the right position at the right time so going forward what actually sort of needs to happen practically and the science is going forward and as you say developing all the time we're working in collaboration with other scientists and getting a much better steer better data sets i guess on how it all works what do we need to happen practically then do we need so some of the certainly 
from the Isle of Man's point of view, do we need to have these areas protected or how does it work? So quite a lot of our blue carbon habitats are protected in our network of marine um, nature reserves. So we actually have a network of 10 marine nature reserves around the island and they cover around 50% of our inshore waters, which is fantastic. Um, so in theory, they're protected in that sense. But as I was talking before about impacts on land also um, impact our marine environment. So making sure that the runoff off the land is um, of, of good quality and won't negatively impact you know making sure that sewage outflows aren't impacting negatively upon um, blue carbon ecosystems those those habitats are actually outside of protected areas so um, this summer alone we found quite a few new seagrass patches that are outside of um, protected areas so how we actually make sure we pr protect them in legislation um, and also just bringing people's awareness up because people's activities like mooring recreational boating um, and can all impact upon these systems so it's making sure that we're all aware of how um, best to interact with with our marine environment to cause as, as least harm as possible really and do you think we can get everyone to sing from the same hymn book as it were I think we can get enough people singing from the same hymn book that it gets the job done that we need. We're never going to have everybody on board and that's not really the aim of sort of climate action. Um, it's that we need enough people and the right people doing the right thing um, for it to, to ensure that we have like a healthy and thriving environment going forward. But certainly in terms of the communities on the Isle of Man, the people here that there are key players in, in the marine environment. So the infrastructure, fishing, um, business on, and conservationists, we're all on the same page that this needs to happen, that we need to work together. There's a recognition that we need to work together and maintain the Isle of Man seas as a, as a busy working environment, but also to prioritise looking after its health. Okay. And part of our job as government I guess, you know, we're not looking for everybody to suddenly put on a blue hat and, and, and or get in the sea and be complete ocean lovers, you know, like us. But part of our role as government is, is making it easy for people to have less impact, whether that's through legisl legislation and regulation. Mm -hmm. So actually um, making sure that that impact that people maybe don't realise they're having is, is taken away. And you know, that's through managing um, water treatment and all that sort of stuff. And in planning and and coastal development, and that's kind of our role. It's not everybody's role to be completely cognizant of what they're doing, but what we would like people is to be a little bit more aware of how their actions can impact the world around them. That's another bad pun coming out. I think the tide has changed, doesn't it, <laughs> over the last decade or so, where actually, you know, I, I was a member of Greenpeace when I was a student, so you go back 30 years, and it was considered a bit of a wacky out there kind of, of environmental group at the time. Uh, but actually, pretty much everything they were saying was true and all of the things that they were worried about were were real things that we needed to be worried about and, and the world didn't listen soon enough. But now that narrative has shifted and I think particularly within the biosphere thing, people are proud of biosphere, even if they don't understand all of the minutiae of each part of the protection that's being done or the work that's being done to support that. They're proud of being able to say we're a biosphere nation. And as much as it's about culture and heritage and, and economics, it's it's the environment that people tend to latch on to in that. Yeah. So I think it's almost like you know, we're singing from the same hymn sheet, but you're, you're preaching to a converted mm. audience, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's much easier now to take people on that journey with you and say, these are things we need to do. And it's, it's brilliant to have this work going on. So you've got scientifically based 
judgments about what what needs to happen and then yeah that for me as a politician that's really easy then to justify why legislation needs to change in different areas or why we might extend the marine nature reserves or you know whatever it, it takes and we've got various mechanisms legally now that we can we can step up and protect those areas that need doing and that's that's another area isn't it it's one thing having the science which obviously Rowan you're heavily involved in your actually science and looking at the political side as well and that's where it all comes down to it like I said unless you get legislation in place and get people on board and I suppose again as it says you know you need a joined up approach between government government departments and the stakeholders is, is that the nub is that the hardest part of the whole of the whole operation I think it is I mean, you go back 12-15 years and then there was a consultation about doing marine nature reserves then it ended horrendously it was really bad and there was a lot of conflict between government and the stakeholders and then that narrative has moved now and so we can actually have those sensible conversations and we can take people with us and it's not a conflict situation anymore it's a how do we best work together and, and what are the best outcomes for everyone who's involved um, and with an overarching need that we can't ignore environmental protection anymore. We had this narrative in the Isle of Man of we don't like change, but I think that itself is changing. <laughs> I think that there's an understanding that that society has to change and how we are living has to change, but also a changing understanding that that can be for the better, that what actually we're moving towards, what we want to move towards is a really exciting future where you know, we have cleaner seas, we have cleaner air, where our health and well-being is looked after better because nature around us is thriving, we're thriving, and a better understanding that we are not separate from nature, that we're all interconnected with each other and with our living environment. Um, so I think that it's, yeah, the changing narrative of actually, we do like change, we want change, we want to make things better. I think that's that's a, a sort of a new perspective that's coming as well. It was a bit of a generational thing that you can measure, isn't there, about who believes in climate change and who doesn't. And uh, there are those kind of on that older end of the, the thing that tend to be the ones that are more sceptical and, and won't buy into this anyway. And to be fair, it doesn't necessarily matter that they don't. The changes will have to come anyway. And the younger generation are right behind what we're doing and, and, and you know they will move with us quite easily and the reality is that actually it, the island fundamentally connects us all you know we're, we're all here because we love love the island and, and love to see it thriving and I think you would struggle to find anybody on the island that wouldn't want to have you know more nature around them to be able to look out to see and see more dolphins jumping or you know and I think like you said since the pandemic people have got even more fundamentally connected to nature so many people are sea swimming now and going out on kayaks and um, and that's what it's all about you know that's what we're talking about you know it's it's easy to get lost in the nitty-gritty of the science but what we're trying to do is creating a create a, a sea that is thriving so that we can thrive you know they're all completely fundamentally linked I think the language and understanding has changed, doesn't it? And, you know, I, I've, I've laughed because I come from a medical research background. And I've laughed at the fact that people now throw it around things like vaccines and vaccine resistance and vaccine escape. And, you know, it's so coronavirus kind of changed how we how we all use language around disease transmission. But in, in biosphere stuff, the language has changed there that people will use those terms that would have been the province of environmental scientists 20 years ago, but they now become part of our daily language and we recognise that more. And I think that's just reflective of that kind of growing understanding of how ecosystems work, how they are all interconnected and how we, we have an impact on those. 
and on the other side of that coin it's in, we have to be cognizant of signed as scientists to to use language that's engaging and 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 understanding because we did a we did the blue carbon film and it was it was really eye-opening actually to work with um a producer and filmmaker that don't come from a scientific background and the amount of slaps on the hand they gave us no one's going to (laughs) understand what you're talking about stop it no no that's (laughs) too scientific you've made it sound really boring and actually it's really important point that we need to be talking about this in a way that engages people and that's why it's so important to to bring in the arts and 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 to and the you know, poetry and, mm. and, and make people visualize what we're trying to create because, you know, everybody learns and understands in different ways and we have to be cognizant of that as scientists. That's true. And I think Fiona Gale's book actually does that very well indeed. It's yeah. that sort of juxtaposition between she's a scientist, she's a marine scientist, she's steeped in that, but also the whole culture, the whole, as you say, how the marine environment isn't just a, a sort of something to go and go fishing in and sail on or whatever. It's that whole part of our culture as well. And she mixes very beautifully the sort of the two sides of, of that I think and we are seeing more and more of that do you think people are buying more into because again I was making a note of a little uh, line you had saying that trying to get people to understand we are nature rather than separate from nature problem being I think certainly in, in years past that if you leave mo- most ecosystems to their own devices they'll always balance themselves out as soon as we get involved and think oh we don't like that aspect of it we'll rip it out and to use a technical phrase that buggers everything up are we moving away from that? I think so. I think that that it's certainly within sort of our our bubble that that is something that's changing. I think even in science and conservation that there's still been a lot of talk and there still are people who talk about humans and nature and talk about them separately, but that is changing. Whether that is in the wider sort of public perception yet, perhaps not so much, but again I think I think that it is coming. I think that we can see how working with nature and in encouraging natural processes like blue carbon, the blue carbon project's aiming to do, people can see how that benefits us and understand the interactions of, of us and in inverted commas nature as well. I think it's really hard and I completely get it that when times are tough, you know, I grew up with a fa- in a family that had very little money and I think when times are as tough as they are now for a lot of people mm. it makes it really hard to think about our natural world um, but I think people are understanding more than ever that when they go out in nature they feel better mm. and I think that's the first step um, to helping to build that relationship and that connection um, and it's our job to really show how the two are completely linked and help people on that journey because when it comes down to the bottom line and you need to think about you know directly about your family I, I think a lot of people don't have the space to think about nature in that sense but um, I think it's f- for us to move the narrative away from maybe that more of that consumerist capitalist society and more into something that's a bit more connected and and, and you realize you don't need all that stuff actually because I, I feel just as good going for a walk than I do going and buying a load of stuff that I don't need and I think that is changing I definitely noticed this Christmas a lot of people saying I just don't want to buy all that mm-hmm. stuff I don't I want to spend time with my family mm-hmm. and and I think the dreaded c word that we shouldn't say <laughs> gave people that space to realize that actually what was really important was spending time with their family and their friends um and spending time in nature and and I think those are the things that we keep, need to keep saying to yeah. people yeah I think that's true I think there's a shift to sort of people enjoying experiences more than just the materialistic wealth or goods sometimes. I think there has been a, a notable shift over the last few years on that. Absolutely. 
going forward, are we are we optimistic then? You're obviously excited. We've got the the pro- the, the project, not uh, yeah, broken down. It is the project <laughs> going forward now. So that's uh, very exciting. You're obviously happy. Lots of great work going on there. So hopefully we can come back and, and get an update on that in the in the next step. Uh, I don't know, six months, year or something, and uh, have another podcast on that, which will be lovely. Uh, are, are we optimistic that people are going to buy into this? That this is going to be you know blue carbon is going to become more important. It's I suppose we should say it's not a silver bullet in itself but feeds into the whole larger picture. But uh, are, we, are we heading in the right direction? Are we happy with that? I, I think we're definitely heading in the right direction. I, I think you're right. Blue carbon is not a silver bullet, and, and there won't be a point where we can say, it's OK, we can carry on doing these really damaging things on land because the seal mop it up for us. And I, I we've had that tendency to think that for ages. I was stunned when I visited the um, Channel Islands recently. Uh, to discover that several of their like waste proposals are we take it and we tip it over a cliff because we've got 10 metres of tide here and that's what they are still doing in this day and age and you think actually we are we are streets ahead of, of some of that we, we've tackled some of the really difficult problems and, and this is just part of that tackling the problem of climate change going forward but it's a really key part and as I'm quite enthusiastic that, that you know that bit at least is sorted and settled and we, we can argue about what's happening in the rest of how do we decarbonise and how do we meet those targets um, that, that have been set out for us now. They used to say that the solution to pollution was dilution. <laughs> and they used to put everything in the sea. You know, that's why we find ourselves where we that's are. What we did, yeah. um, and for me, I'm, yeah, I'd say I'm I'm optimistic. What what I'd like people to think about when they think about our seas and blue carbon is, is like Michelle says, it's obviously not a silver bullet solution, but climate change is massive and it feels quite scary. But for me, what gives me hope is that if we take our pressure off those natural systems they will they will bounce back and they will help us on our journey to where we need to get to in net zero and that gives me hope because it doesn't make me feel so alone and and makes me realize actually we have this wonderful natural world around us that can actually really help us on that journey if we change our ways on land um so for me that gives me comfort and i hope that that people get comfort from that as well and jackie yes i am I'm cautiously optimistic. I think we have to, I think as scientists, we tend to be cautious about everything. But, you know, we've spoken about the the advantages of working in the Isle of Man and the, and the exciting opportunities it offers. And for me, having spent this year working on this project and meeting all of our partners and stakeholders and, and the different communities that we're working with, we can see that there's a real desire to change and a real drive to work together collaboratively and that's what we have to do we have to work together to to be able to to understand our seas better to understand that the whole environment better and the interactions that happen within the environment and to look after it and that's essential to make sure that we have this exciting and beautiful future ahead of us well, it's a fascinating topic. We've uh, talked happily for three quarters of an hour today and barely scratched the surface, really, of, of so many aspects of it. We could go on for hours, but uh, clearly everyone's busy. I need to let you go. Just before we do go, you mentioned the film. I can imagine people saying, well, where do I find out more? Are, are there websites or places people can go to actually find out more about the project, what's going on, what you'll be doing over the next year or two? Yeah, so you can check out what we're doing and and the video, Slynamara, if I've, um, hopefully I've, done justice to the pronunciation of that <laughs> my, of my mics <laughs> but if you go to netzero.am forward slash blue carbon you'll find out loads more about the project loads more about blue carbon and 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 see updates from there
It's been fascinating. Thanks ever so much for chatting on the podcast today. Uh, shall we reconvene in, it seems to be moving very quickly all this, so I don't know, six months, ten months time, a year's time, and That'd we'll get an update. Yeah. Lovely. Perfect. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. To give the seagrass a chance We gotta take a stance It's up to you to choose Or we'll be singing the bluegrass